We're talking about the character Melchizedek and the Jesus coming from the line of Melchizedek and not from the line of Levi. So it's not just that he's the best of the Levitical priests. It's that he's not even in that line. He is in a superior line. And we said seven reasons. We covered the first four. Abraham tithed to Melchizedek, the greater, receives from the lesser in every exchange, which is why the priest received from the people. Uh, and yet, when Abraham and Melchizedek encounter at the height of Abraham's supremacy, uh, Abraham tithes to Melchizedek. Then Melchizedek blesses Abraham. So you want to be blessed by the one in the greater position. The greater blesses the younger. Parents bless their children. The pastor, the representative of Christ over the worship service, blesses the people in the benediction. You have the greater symbolically uh, bless the uh, not as great symbolically. And in this case, it's not Abraham, the great patriarch, who blesses Melchizedek, but it's the other way around. The third is that Melchiz uh, Christ's priesthood, Melchizedek's priesthood, was more effective. And that we argued from the negative side. If the Levitical priesthood was so effective, why did they have to keep doing it over and over again? Why did they even need a line of priests from Melchizedek if the line of Levi was effective to save the people? It wasn't, which is why God and his providence had the line of Melchizedek all along. Jesus comes from that line. Um, and so that points to the more effectiveness of the Melchizedek line than the Levitical line. And then fourth was Christ's priesthood comes from a better tribe, the tribe of Levi, good tribe, priests come from that tribe, but Jesus is from the tribe of Judah, the tribe of kings. And the messianic promise is not just that this uh, Messiah would be the, sac the great priest, the one who sacrifices for sin, but that this Messiah would in fact be the king the king of righteousness, the king of peace, which, hey, happens to be Melchizedek's name. Funny how that worked out. So that's everything we've covered so far with respect to Hebrews 7 and Christ and Melchizedek. And today, all I want to cover are the last three on my list of markers that the author of Hebrews gives us to point out, to make this point, why Christ and Melchizedek's priesthood uh, is more effective. So let me pray, and then we'll finish this up. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the chance to worship. Thank you for the chance to be inside, away from the cold and the rain. We pray that you would bless our time together, that you would give us wisdom and understanding as we search the scriptures. Help us to know Christ better. We pray this in his name. Amen. All right. The fifth point is that Christ's priesthood is eternal. So if you look at uh, Hebrews 7, verse 15, this I'm sorry, did I say 15? 7 verse 15. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning body descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then jump down to verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So all the other priests, the Levitical priests, had at some point, no matter how good or dedicated a priest they were, at some point they were going to cease their priestly duty, right? Because they died. All of them died. But unlike them, 
Christ is a priest forever. Christ is our advocate and our intercessor forever so that our salvation is forever. And this goes back to um, thinking about the way that typology, that concept of these shadows and realities works, not just in the Bible, though in the Bible, but in all of literature, which is for the shadow of the thing. So in this case, for Melchizedek, you give something an appearance and that appearance reflects the reality. So what I mean is Melchizedek was not eternal. Melchizedek did actually die. Melchizedek was actually born. But our encounter with Melchizedek in Genesis, that information is purposefully omitted so that it gives the literary view, the the sign of he has no age and he has no end because the thing that he represents, Jesus Christ, actually has no age and actually has no end. So the author of Hebrews is not saying it's actually the case that Melchizedek was not born and never died and that Melchizedek's priesthood is eternal. It's saying, no, Melchizedek, because he was a type of Christ, the way God through Moses presented him to us is with no beginning and with no end and with no age, which is actually true of Christ. Whereas the Levitical priesthood was marked by age and death, uh, the priesthood of Melchizedek has no age and it has no end. The, there's a lot of priests in the tribe of Levi. You see those, I think a couple of weeks ago, I was, my head was in a different place and I said Daniel. But you see those in Ezra and Nehemiah where the rebuilding of the temple is taking place and they talk about having to come back and that's where they make the lists of who's going to uh, function in what job? Who are the musicians? And so when you read, it's funny, you know, people make fun of numbers as the Bible book that nobody wants to read. But Ezra Nehemiah has these long sections of, here are the list of the musicians from the house of so-and-so, 17 people. And then it names them. You're like, cool. Uh, so not, not the easiest, uh, enjoyable read, but very important, very purposeful reading in that, that genealogy proved everything. It was their birth that gave them the rightful claim over that job. And yet what is said here about Melchizedek in shadow and about Christ in reality is it's not a real bloodline thing that makes this happen. It is about, what does he say in verse, uh, uh, not on the, verse 16, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descendant, but on the power of an indestructible life. That Christ himself, the reason he could actually be the great high priest, is so much more than just the genealogy that the Levites claimed, the, the genealogical cases made here. But it's so much more. It's the power of an indestructible life. Is that he is God himself, the great high priest. Questions about that one? I need a sip of coffee. I don't really care if you have questions. I just need a sip of coffee. All right, six. And this one doesn't seem like such a big deal for us, but the author of the Hebrews brings it up because it's really important in Jewish culture. Look at verse 20. Christ's priesthood was inaugurated with an oath, and it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. He's quoting there the psalm that we read uh, last time, the psalm where we learn about Melchizedek, uh, how Melchizedek will be interpreted in light of the coming Messiah. A priest in the line of Levi is not inaugurated with an oath. It's just a reality. 
They're inaugurated. They have birthright to it. They start working the job, and then they work the job, and it's just what they do. But Christ's inauguration was an oath. And oh, by the way, who swore the oath? God himself. God himself swore, you are the ultimate priest. And God swears it by his own authority that Christ is a priest in the order of Melchizedek forever. So it's a pretty significant claim that's being made here from Psalm 1010, that God himself looks at the coming Messiah and says, you, coming Messiah, are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And this is one of our uh, responses and one of the, the rightful, logical arguments over people who do not see Jesus as the Messiah of the Old Testament is you have to combine all of the specific prophecies that God makes about what the Messiah will be like, and those prove that Jesus is who he says he is. So there's a real proof in the pudding thing. It's going to be like this. Here's how it's going to happen. Here's how you know it's him, right? And then when John the Baptist comes, John the Baptist is able to take everything he's learned from Old Testament prophecy and point at Jesus and say, that guy, it's him. But then once you do that, you're allowed to go back to the Old Testament and look at things that God says about Messiah. Not not prophecies like this is how you know it's him, but what are the things that will be true about this Messiah? You get to go backwards and see all the places where that's true. And so it is important that the Old Testament testifies to the divinity of Jesus. That the Old Testament says when the Messiah comes, he will be God. He will be eternal. He will not be someone that just temporarily becomes God. uh, 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 Various heresies. Uh, It's not going to be somebody who is like as a son to God or who just is a really great miracle worker that God chooses to use as the best prophet ever. That's not what the Old Testament says about the Messiah when he comes. So once we're confident that Jesus is the Messiah, then we go back and we say, well, what does it say? And it says a lot of things, including that he is a priest forever, that God himself swore uh, that that he would have this authority. Um, Seventh and last, Christ's priesthood is morally perfect. And as far as we're concerned, this is probably the most important um, because none of the rest matters if this ultimately isn't true. If Jesus is a better priest than all the other priests, but still can't satisfy the wrath of God forever against sin, who cares, right? It's quibbling over the fourth and the fifth picks in the draft and which one is really more valuable. Who who cares? It's, it doesn't, doesn't change my life. Uh, so if you look at verse 26, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of an oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. You think about What did the law appoint? Well, the law appointed men to be high priests. And the big problem with men was that they had just as much of their own sin as the sin of the people that they're trying to make atonement for. And so the law had to account for that. The law had to say, before the high priest can make sense for the people, the high priest has to make sense for themselves. And then you've got this 
you know, if you try to think about this really exactingly, really precisely, what happens if the high priest sins in between when he makes sacrifice for the for himself and when he makes sacrifice for the people? Well, pro tip, he does because he's human. He does. And so it was never intended like some magic sleight of hand gesture where if we can just get this guy clean enough, then he'd be able to bring forgiveness for your sins. It was always a type, a shadow, a picture of what was real so that we would be reminded and so that Israel would be reminded time after time, this guy who's supposedly making atonement for our sins, he hasn't even solved his own sin problem yet. This can't possibly bring about a salvation that lasts forever. And Christ's perfection is the reason why his priesthood really works. He was the first priest that did not have to make sacrifice for his own sins. And that enabled him to be both the priest and the sacrifice at the same time because he was morally perfect. So whereas the other priests, they could have offered themselves up for sacrifice if they wanted, it would have been a suicide mission that accomplished nothing. They would not have conquered death. They would not have been raised from the dead. Their death would not have satisfied God's wrath because God is not impressed by morally broken, uh, problematic, extremely imperfect sacrifices. You can't take the, again, go back to the Old Testament types, you can't take the sad, lame, sickly sheep and bring that up to God and think that that's going to sacrifice, that's going to satisfy God's wrath. Well, in the human sacrifice category, we are the lame, sickly, sad sheep. We are the ones that if we were brought to the altar and said, hey, we'll give you this guy to sacrifice for sins, God would say, gee, thanks. That does me a lot of good. But Jesus Christ, being morally perfect, uh, was able to be the sacrifice. And so the key word in that passage is such, for it is indeed fitting that we would have such a high priest. That's all of it. That, that The gospel is in that word such, because without it, it doesn't work. If you don't have a high priest that is Christ, that meets all the requirements that Christ meets, that checks the boxes that Christ checks, um, then you can't, you can't be saved. God's plan of salvation would not work. And really, what else could be said to describe the person and work of Christ as high priest? All the author can say is, such a high priest. <laughs> This, like, more high priest than any high priest you've ever known. What a high priest is actually supposed to be, the high priest par excellence. Um, and yet, look at this great little contrast that this high priest is concerned with our need. Um, that Christ gave of himself, not for people who deserved that, not for people who... Uh, we're almost there, and he was just going to help them get over the finish line. But for people like us, for people who would have uh, had to sacrifice again and again and again to no avail. Any questions about those seven things? And then I want to talk about verse 28 a little bit. Question on, so what did the Old Testament sacrifices do with regard to sin? Nothing. Other than... So they, were they merely just pointing forward to Christ? Yeah, they, they, so, well, let's say they did two things. They demonstrated obedience to God because God said, do them. And so that has some value, right? God says, do this. And even when we don't understand, um, or we'll say in our modern context, agree with what God tells us to do sometimes, there's genuine value in obedience. It demonstrates trust in God and faithfulness. And they pointed forward. 
and that's it. But there was not one single sin in the history of the world that God was mad about that God stopped being mad because a bull, a goat, a sheep died. There was not, so a grain offering is a wonderful sacrifice to God demonstrating our loyalty and our love for God and, you know, similar to what we do when we put checks and cash in the basket, right? But there was not one single sin in the history of the world that God was mad at that he stopped being mad at because somebody made a grain offering. Does not happen. Uh, Unless you see that grain offering the way God sees that grain offering, which is the person with faith that this sacrificial act of obedience to God, even though they don't know it, is trusting God, believing in God's promise, in such a way that what God sees, independent of our timeline of thinking, is that God does see this. So that's why, back to Fagan's question several weeks ago, you know, when you got Abraham here, what, what is Abraham believing in that actually saves him? Or is Abraham in limbo for 5,000 years until Jesus actually comes? No, not at all. God up here that I don't draw. Uh, you see what a good job I did on Abraham. Can you imagine what I would do with God himself? Uh, God sees this moment of faithful belief, obedience, trust, hope. God is who he says he is and will do what he says he will do. God sees that as trusting in this because it's it's what it is. The only person who doesn't know that is him not knowing the name Jesus. So you see how that could relate to the offering? That, That God would see an act of sacrificial obedience with a genuine heart for the purpose of obeying and believing his promises. He sees that as faith in what God will do in Christ. There's a lot of caveats there. You've got to be careful. Jake, you're making a funny face. I'm going to steer it off into heresy. No, actually, I, I, my question is about you use the phrase sins that God is mad at. All sins. Okay. You can yeah, yeah, put yeah. that on and I mean, are there sins that he's not? No, I just okay. wanted to emphasize that the problem with sin, like... My sins. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no, no problem with Pam's sin. No, what's wrong with the rest of it? No, it's, it's a great point. I brought it in to emphasize that the problem, our existential problem when we sin, is that sin makes God mad at us. That That is the nature of our existential problem. It's not like... Uh, it doesn't matter. I don't want to use an analogy. The problem with sin is that when we sin, God hates sin. And God hates, we get in trouble now, God hates sinners because of their sin. That's that's who God is. He is holy. He is so holy. If he ceased for a moment to hate sin, he would not be perfectly holy. He would not be God. He'd cease to be. And so God hates sin and hates sinners on account of their sin. And so uh, I, when I was teaching children in Sunday school, you, when you, you're teaching kids who grew up in the church, right? And they know the language of the church. So they know that they are supposed to be saved. Saved is the word that everybody knows. And so you ask the kids, saved from what? When we say we are saved, what are we saved from? And the answer is, God, I need to be saved 
from God because he hates sin and I am a sinner. And if something in this relationship doesn't change, he's going to destroy me. And that's why the New Testament uses a complicated word, but an important one, propitiation. And we say, ah, it's a big fancy theology word. I don't, sometimes we have to learn big fancy words. If mom walks into your room and your room is a mess, a tornado, and mom hath told thee on four occasions, make thy room clean, what will mom be? Angry. Mom will be angry. And what do you need to do to solve the existential problem in your life of an angry mom? You need to make her not angry. That's propitiation. To make not angry. That's what propitiation is. So with mom, you clean the room and you come forward with humility and say, I'm sorry, mom. I have sinned. You told me four times to clean my room. I did not do so. I have now cleaned my room. I am sorry. Will you forgive me? And mom will not be angry, potentially. Let me ask you this question. Yeah. Um, but there's a couple things that you had said, um, and uh, I, I'm not being facetious when I ask this question. But does God, not Jesus, but does God like human beings? Because it seems that, and, and again, you said it, and it's also in the Bible that He's angry. He's this. this individual and angry all the time. He said that he would destroy us. Um, why then should I care or love someone or whatever mm -hmm. that will destroy me because I make human mistakes? And I think that's, and, and it's not just from what you had said, it's been things that I've heard before over the years. And, um, Jesus acts as a uh, mediator between us and the Father. Mm -hmm. um, the mediation part, I mean, it's, I, you know, it's, I just don't understand the anger part. Uh, you know, we, we're, we are created with imperfection. No. That's the part. Okay. That's the part. And so it's a, it's a great way because in it is, it is completely rational that from where we sit today, human experience, human understanding, that we would think, man, what is, what is God's problem? Nobody's perfect. Because that's how we have to behave with one another, right? right. It's absolutely in order to live at peace with anyone. We must have the attitude of nobody's perfect. And then if we want to live well with people, we should say, and I'm the least perfect of all in my own experience, right? Because we know our own sin uh, the most. The difference is we are and have and dwell in imperfection. It's all around us. It's a part of us. And so we are very much at peace with it. God is morally perfect, has never made a mistake, 
has never, has never sinned. Has, God is morally perfect. And so for him, perfection is attainable and avoidable. And I want one thing, the only thing in what you said that I think it's really important to get the definition right is I said God hates sin. You said God hates or gets mad about mistakes. God gets mad about sin. He gets mad about anything that deviates from that moral perfection. So that's part one. Part two was your very good question of, but if he's mad and I can't do anything about it, why, do I, why would I care? That is the argument that the author's trying to make all throughout the book of Hebrews, which is, if you truly could do nothing about it, you shouldn't care. The New Testament says that. If Jesus is not dead and raised first, you should not care. Eat, drink, be merry, enjoy this life the best you can on whatever terms you want. You should not care. But God the Father, the one who was angry, made a way where his wrath can be satisfied. So not only is he the one who's angry, and rightfully so because he's perfect and cannot dwell in perfection, he made a way. He didn't just show us the way. It's not like that's the religion that wears people out is, all right, God's angry. What do I have to do to not make God angry? All right, well, here's your list of 57 things. And if you can do these 57 things in your life, God won't be angry with you anymore. Oh, no, I broke number three. Now, right, that religion wears people out. But what God actually did was not just show the way for him to not be angry, make a list. God sent Christ. Christ said, I come to do my father's will. It's not like Christ came saying, I better do something. This angry father doesn't, you know, wants to kill you all. I come to do the father's will. God sent Christ, not just to show the way, but to make a way. And instead of that way being... I want you to do 1 through 57. God the Father says, my anger toward you is 100% absolved if you will actually believe in my son who I sent. So if God had not made a way, or if God had made a way that I couldn't actually do, I wouldn't care. I would say, he's a holy God, he's an angry God, whether or not I think it's just that he's angry, it doesn't matter, because if I can't do anything about it, I don't care. But he gave me the one thing I could do because it doesn't involve me doing anything. Because he says, even this, even this faith, you guys would screw that up. <laughs> so I'll give that to you too. And don't you, I mean, don't you, don't you feel that tension? Like the, we laugh about it because it's funny the way I say it, that we would screw up faith. But don't you feel that in your own mind? Don't you feel like, man, uh, today is not the day to write my eulogy. <laughs> today is not the day for somebody to take the way I feel about God or the way I think about faith and write a text message or write a, uh, write a, uh, uh, uh public billboard message on the religion. So uh, it's a broad question. That's my kind of summary answer. 
Pam, did you have? No. Sorry, I thought I saw your hand go. Daphne had one. One of the books that my kids and I are going through right now, going back to what we were talking about before, it talks about the, the animal sacrifices being symbols for Christ. But it also talks, it also says that uh, it takes that passage from Hebrews about for without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission for sins. So it says that the, it was also the animal sacrifices atonement, like cover for their sins so that God wouldn't, you know, and then the difference is Christ is actual washing away and giving righteousness, which is better than just covering over. Uh, is that just wrong? <laughs> or I don't understand the question part of it. It's not wrong. Okay, I don't understand. You said there was no point in the animal sacrifices besides pointing to Jesus. This said it actually did some it atonement. No, it, 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 it. What they probably meant and didn't say very carefully is my arrow. The faith exhibited by the doing of the animal sacrifice is what does the covering. So the faith that this sacrifice is pleasing to God and he accepts, that's what does the covering. The faith in the blood, even though it's not that blood at all. That, and I tell you what, you want proof that even in the Old Testament you didn't need that blood at all. Uh, name, a, name a bloodless sacrifice in the Old Testament that God accepted as equally valid for a demonstration of faith. Abraham and Isaac. He got all the credit as if blood had been shed. And right? Yeah. And so God said symbolically, I'll give you this other animal so that you can have your blood and you can but it, it was his it was his trust. Faith in the God is who he says he is and will do what he says he will do. That is faith. Whatever activity God asks me to perform, he is who he says he is and he will do what he says he will do. And I'm very, I'm very pro-religion. Like I get uncomfortable with the crowd that's doesn't like the word religion or doesn't like the... Like, I'm pro-religion. Religion's a useful word. But we vastly overcomplicate the Christian religion when we try to make it about something more than believing what God says. And so, from every moment, Abraham and Isaac, bulls and goats, this moment right here, and where we are in history, looking back on that moment... Every single moment is the same religion. Do you believe what God says? And, and that, that is, again, back to Paul's question, that, that I can do, asterisk, 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 because he gives me faith, right? But now on this side of faith, I can actually say with confidence, I can do that. I can't do the list. I can try to do the list as an exercise in faithfulness and obedience to God. I can try to do the list because I believe God that the way he tells me to live is better for me and more pleasing to him. But I can only 
try to do the list if I know that my ability to deal with God's anger is not tied to the list. There are all kinds of things that we are willing to do for people with joy and gladness out of love because we see that they need it. That is the exact same task that we would grumble against if we had to do it simply out of its duty on a list. We will clean somebody's house. We will clean somebody's bathroom. We will scrub their toilet because they've been in bed, you know, for six weeks with bed rest from a pregnancy. And do that generally, I think most of us, without grumbling. But if my chore on the weekly chore list is I got to clean these toilets, I have a different point of view with respect to the toilet cleaning. <laughs> so it, it really is a perspective question. Um, and it's a great thing to consider. Uh, when we want to be, if, if the problem is God is angry with our sin and with us because of our sin, Do, do I care and can I do anything about it? And I think what's really interesting about your question, Paul, the way most of us come to this question is we start with do I care and what will make us care is the answer to can I. Because what draws me to God in love, what makes me care about dealing with his anger, is seeing that he's actually the one who provided the way of dealing with his anger. For no reason. Has every right to just smite me. In the King of the Hill episode I was talking about earlier, that was one of Leanne's responses was, when God get mad, God smites. (laughs) He has every right to do that. And the fact that he makes a way, even for me, stubborn, imperfect, full of sin, prone to mistakes, the fact that he not just shows, but makes a way, that's what makes me care. 